Hello and welcome to the Cinema in Seconds podcast. This is the podcast where we look in small moments in great movies or not so great movies. Maybe a mix of both in this case. My name is Ian. And I'm Daniel. And this week we are looking at the films of M. Night Shyamalan. And to help us out, Michael, welcome back to the podcast. Good to be back. Uh, this was kind of your idea. I think we you needed like a therapy session after seeing some of his movies or something. So why don't you tell us where this came from? Yeah, I don't know. This, this, no director has quite taken me on a journey like M. Night Shyamalan has. Um, it goes way back to, to 1999. The Sixth Sense comes out. And I'm just the perfect age for that movie to have come out. I was 11 years old at the time, the same age as the kid in the movie. And I saw it opening weekend, didn't have the twist ruined for me. And this is right when I'm sort of starting to get into, you know, grown up movies, you know, PG-13 grown up movies, but grown up movies. And I don't know, it just it, I was, it just hit me so wonderfully. It's like embedded in my psyche as sort of one of those can- canonical, you know, early getting into movies, uh, film trips. And so it was, it was, it felt like I was like there on day one when a great auteur was going to emerge. And, you know, I kept I'm it I'm sure up. that it's what you thought as a kid too, right? That's exactly yeah. your thoughts. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you, great auteurs emerging. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, actually. Call Saris and enter a new name into the Pantheon, baby. Yeah, so him and Michael Bay. Real real really picked them picked the picked the good ones there. Um so then you know Unbreakable comes out, and that's also solid movie for me. And then Signs comes out. I, I dug Signs a whole lot. That's that might even be my favorite of the first three at the time at least. And um when when that newsweek cover came out saying the next Spielberg question mark. Yeah. You, if you asked me, I would have been said, hell yeah, he's the next Spielberg. So then he makes the village and I go to see the village. I'm psyched. I'm looking for the next chapter of Shyamalan goodness. And I don't know. Something hits me like halfway through the movie. I'm like, wait, this is not good. That this guy did not, he didn't hit it out of the park again. But you know, I get back from it. I'm thinking, okay, even Hitchcock had some bad movies. He'll he'll come back with the next one. The next one's Lady in the Water, which is just the work of a madman. <laughs> and then along comes The Happening, which might be the worst movie I've seen in theaters as an adult. Maybe the worst one ever, except I've seen Battlefield Earth in theaters, so that's <laughs> maybe not so much. But it's 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 up there. And at that point, I'm just crushed. I'm I've I'm give, giving up on the guy, and I assume the rest of the world is going to give up on the guy too. But man, the guy—you got to respect the hustle because he's really stuck in there, and he's managed it's to gone. kind of stay relevant, and he's still making hit movies all these years later. And artistically, he has never won me back—not even a little bit. But I I just he he has stuck around in a way I find almost admirable and some at some time some point in the last two years I almost something kind of flipped in me where I, I start looking at his latter career a little differently I just kind of see it in that sort of 
fascination. It's like when you get to the end of a slasher movie series and you've given up on them making another classic again, but you're just, you're interested in seeing how they're going to keep this series going. And the M night Shyamalan franchise, it just, I, I watch in fascination as it continues. And that's kind of where I am now. And the, the last couple months leading up to the release of his new movie, knock at the cabin. I, I went back and watched some of the M night Shyamalan movies that I, hadn't seen before, which I'll be turning into a post for my blog, the movie vampire.wordpress.com. And um yeah, just after watching all of those, I'm like, okay, I need another outlet to <laughs> say my thoughts on this man and his his oeuvre. So I contacted you two and here we are. Yep. Excellent. You whispered, you should do Shyamalan. Like, okay. There's a move one coming out. It's a good idea. Um it's a very, very good overview of his career and uh, good of how fortunate for us that you were there, like on the ground level, as it were. Um, I mean, you weren't there with like praying with anger. So you weren't there from like the very beginning, uh, but more or less from you kind of chart the the rise and fall, as it were. Uh, it's funny because like I would have seen my first Shyamalan would have been the sixth sense. Well, unless you count his rewrite of Stuart Little as part of his oeuvre. But and who was... doesn't? <laughs> Uh, the Sixth Sense was the first one I saw, and I probably would have seen it like in about 2005, 2006. So when the sort of the fall is starting to happen. But at that point, I was pretty disconnected from like film. I was young and I was really disconnected from film culture even a little bit. So I was unaware of all that. I just knew The Sixth Sense as like a famous movie. I think I already knew the twist from just pop culture spoofing it like everywhere. Like at that point, I think I was already familiar with the Ocean's Eleven movies, and in Ocean's Twelve, there's of course a lot about the Sixth Sense and jokes about, oh, you know, I, I saw the twist coming to Bruce Willis. <laughs> um, so I came in kind of late, and even like once I was catching up on some of his older works, it was in the context of like he used to be really good, but now he's not. Um, but I didn't actually see a lot of his more noteworthy bad movies until like the last couple years your lady in the waters your um the happenings they were fairly recent discoveries for me so i don't know this was still even though he's like somewhat he's much newer than a lot of the filmmakers we've talked about in this show he was still far enough away from me that he was kind of part of a before time yeah makes sense i i saw six cents in theaters and it was awesome I don't know that, but at, at, at a certain time, I just stopped watching his movies. Like, uh, I think it was after The Village, I just stopped. I didn't see Lady in the Water. And then every once in a while, I'd catch one if, if people are like, there's a little bit of buzz around it. Like, okay, I'll check that one out and I'll check that one out. But let's just say I had a lot of catching up to do in the last couple of weeks. And <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about that. <laughs> so this week, we're framing things a little bit differently. We're going to. We, like normal, we picked our moments. We have small moments, and we each pick two moments like we usually do. Um, we're going to go more chronologically through his collection. And one of the things that we did as a goal is we all picked one moment that really works for us, that kind of shows his strengths, and then another moment that, you know, shows some of the things that frustrate us about him. So that's how we're framing our, our moments this week. Mm-hmm. Which is makes it easy when there's kind of a clear divide, relatively clear divide in terms of like from good M. Night to bad M. Night. It gets a little mm -hmm. bit muddy at the sort of 
because one of the films like that, you know, one of us has chosen as like a frustrating moment is not a perfect movie, but I think it still fits a little closer to prime era Shyamalan. Mm -hmm. But certainly after that, it's like, oh, no, a ship has sailed. (laughs) And when I say after, I specifically mean after Lady in the Water, because good Lord. Uh, the work of a madman is the correct summation of of that motion picture. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I Michael, almost, why don't? <laughs> oh, I'll just sorry. quickly I'll say I almost chose something from Lady in the Water just because I watched it twice last year, which led to some people being like, "Oh, are you like a Lady in the Water apologist?" Absolutely not. That second viewing was research, and that does not count as pleasure viewing at all. Although my research <laughs> of rewatching Inglorious Bastards was quite nice, so yeah. Um, but Excellent. yeah, we'll get into it, I suppose. Yeah. Well, Michael, you're going to start us off with our first pick, but why don't we just take a little bit of time and talk? Cause you've actually seen like the two movies that nobody knows about from before the sixth sense. So what were those yeah. about? Yeah. So before the sixth sense, M night Shyamalan made two movies in the nineties that basically weren't the first one wasn't distributed at all. The second one is distributed, but no one noticed. Um, uh, and I, I took a look at them in, in the in the interest of science in studying this man and his psyche. And yeah, you know, there are things to glean from them. The first one's called Praying with Anger. It was uh, it was made in 1992. It's kind of his uh, who's that knocking at my door. It's kind of or his following. It's kind of more almost like a student film more than a real movie, but I I don't think he actually technically made it as part of a school curriculum. I think he just got, he knew some rich people who financed it and just made it independently. But uh, student film is probably a good way of looking at it. Uh, It's, it's up on YouTube in very low quality. If anyone's interested, it's a pretty standard coming of age movie starring himself in nineties indie movie fashion. And it's about a teenager, uh, a teenage uh, Indian American who is studying a year abroad in India. It's kind of the only movie he's made that really kind of speaks to his Indian heritage. Um, He's playing a clear self-insert and it doesn't really go anywhere. Um, It it's shot reasonably well, given the circumstances. You can see how it would have been a good sort of resume thing to get other people to let him make movies but uh, uh it's for completists only i don't recommend it uh the second one is kind of is called wide awake it came out in 1998 but it was filmed in 1996 um this is another one that's for completists only um this one is also kind of semi-autobiographical in that it's about a kid going to catholic school which he went to catholic school he considers that an important part of his upbringing uh, but the kid in it is not an Indian American person. He's uh, a little white kid, um, and you would you would not know this is an M Night Shyamalan movie if you weren't looking for it, except at the ending, which spoilers it it has a twist ending in which a character we all thought was real was not real and could only be seen by the kid in the movie. <laughs> I'm not making that up. Holy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but otherwise, uh, it has kind of a weird cast. It has Rosie O'Donnell in it as his nun teacher, and Dennis Leary of all people as the kid's father, who is also completely wasted. I have no idea why he was cast in it. Does he not get to do like any classic Dennis Leary riffing? 
no, he he plays a straightforward sitcom dad father. <laughs> Baffling, because he's not much of an actor, really. So I don't know no. why you would. <laughs> uh, the only but... reason to cast him is to have him go on one of his tirades, but whatever. Right. But the last thing I'll say about the movie is I do think it was a meaningful movie to him. I, I think I get the impression that when M. Night Shyamalan was a kid, he was kind of a weird kind of kid who didn't fit in very well. And that's what the movie is about. It's about a weird kid um, coming to terms with that and being religiously confused because weird religious thoughts is also very much a theme in Shyamalan's work that needs to be parsed because it's not as clear cut as it could be. Um, And that's also a theme in the movie, but yeah, that's about all we need to say about those two. Um, Well, I will say I haven't seen those films, but I read Michael Bamberg or Michael Bamberger's book, uh, the man who heard voices, which is about the making of uh, lady in the water. And he talks a little bit about those films and it seems M night has like, pretty mixed feelings about both of them. Um, His first mostly coming from a place of like, just filmmaker regret of like, I could have done that better. And it feels so amateurish now. Uh, And I think with his second specifically like resentment for his treatment at the hands of Harvey Weinstein and vowing, I will never work with Weinstein again. So even when he left Disney after the village, he's like, I will go elsewhere. But my one rule is not to not to Harvey. Probably a good career move. Yeah, that that held up very well. (laughs) <laughs> so good call there M night. Hmm. Anyway, that's all I have on those films. I have not seen them. No. All right. So let's move on to the big one. Um, and this is one that I have picked a moment from. So Sixth sense, widely beloved classic, a uh, movie that made uh, $672 million worldwide in 1999 dollars. Um, And the moment I am picking is from about midway through the movie. And it's the scene where Bruce Willis's character, Malcolm, uh, pulls out and listens to a tape that was recorded during one of his sessions with uh, the character of Vincent Gray when Vincent Gray was a child. Now, Vincent Gray is the disturbed man played by Donnie Wahlberg in the beginning who shoots and, as it turns out, kills Bruce Willis turning him into a ghost for the rest of the movie that spoilers, by the way. (laughs) Um, And he is a character who is kind of downplayed through much of the movie. Like this is the only other point where they kind of come back to him and he's, he's downplayed for a reason. The movie does not want you to be thinking too much about that opening scene. Just that'll, that will lead you to put together the twist ending. So they want to downplay him as much, but they do have this one scene in here. And I think that's important because I do think Vincent Gray is an interesting aspect of the movie that kind of looms large over it, especially when you're looking back on it. Um, So he listens to this tape and he hears Vincent as a child uh, saying a lot of the same things that Cole has been saying. And he notices that uh, he hears himself saying on the recording, man, it's really cold in here. Mm -hmm. And then he turns up the volume on the tape really loud and he hears a voice in the background, like a creepy ghost voice who's speaking Spanish. So I'm not even going to talk about the volume turning up part. I think that's actually kind of showing his hand a bit too much. Cause just even from that first section where he's talking to Vincent Gray, you can put together that 
Vincent Gray's problem is he has the same sixth sense that Cole had. He's been seeing dead people, but he's not comfortable enough to tell Bruce Willis and Malcolm uh, just kind of fails him. Um, And this, I think, is pretty important to the rest of the movie because it kind of sets up the stakes of the movie. If Malcolm isn't able to reach Cole and help him out and send him on a better way, Cole could become his own Vincent Gray in the future because we've seen what happens to these people when they uh, are just left alone and isolated. Um, And also it means that uh, the rest of the movie is kind of a redemption arc for Malcolm. He needs to save Cole because he failed Vincent uh, when Vincent was in the same position. And that to me is pretty interesting. Um, And yeah, I think it gives an extra depth and meaning to the whole movie. It's a good yeah, scene. It's definitely the crux that it goes on. Yeah. I, I, I got to say, I like the turning up the volume aspect. And I'll tell you why. I think that if it was just he just heard the voices and then realized that Cole was telling the truth, that's one thing. But I like that he, it's almost like he's made the mental decision that even though it's doubtful that this kid can actually listen to the dead, he still maybe should should believe it. And so I think the fact that he's seeking out the the answers by turning up the volume and saying maybe there is something there gives him a little bit more agency in that decision rather than just something he realized changing his mind so yeah i agree with that I'll it's just, just that. the fact that there actually is a voice there that just straight up confirms it for him a little mm-hmm. bit easy i also think they kind of you kind of shawan kind of chickens out by putting like a flashback to vincent gray from the opening scene for a second there on screen <clears throat> uh to make sure just make it very clear to the audience that this is the same Vincent Gray, which yeah. I don't, maybe he did need to do that. And I'm just being a snob, but <laughs> who wants to be able to put things together without getting that extra little push. But well, it's yeah. interesting because I think one of the things that stands out about the scene in a revisit and will be interesting in compared to a moment we're going to talk about later is how Shyamalan does trust the audience to a large extent to make these connections in terms of, Cole's realization, for example, that Vincent had the same problem and that if he fails uh, Cole, he will fail. He will. He can become like Vincent. Like Shyamalan is trusting that the audience will be able to put that together without it being overt in dialogue. That just the images and the the sound recording we hear and also Bruce Willis's performance, which is also, I think, kind of bold because like it was just kind of looking through Bruce Willis's filmography today and it seemed like this was one of the first movies to really sort of take him entirely as just a dramatic actor and not some variation of like an action guy and even afterwards like other than Shyamalan I don't know many filmmakers really tapped into that so it was kind of a a bold move and I think Willis pulls it off really well um yeah I think the level of trust he shows to his audience here is remarkable although I, I think you do point out rightfully that there are a couple of you know, sort of giving away elements here and there, but it definitely could have been worse. Like you don't have Malcolm being like, Oh my God, go surreal. Like there's no verbalization of that, which would have been just like so hackneyed. Um, and the other thing I like in terms of that ties into the whole turning up of the volume thing, if it's, it's one more detail to stretch out the tension of the scene, because I love how slowly M Knight is willing to let this play out. And I think it's a strength to him generally that He's willing to take his time and really sit with 
a scene and moment and stew in the tension. And I think it's important here because you need that time to really put together what's happening because he's not telling you overtly in dialogue. So it's, it's necessary for the storytelling, but I also just appreciate it on like a stylistic level. He's willing to really take his time and not rush through to the next beat. Um, and I don't know, like, I think it's interesting too how film, or, uh, film culture, there's a lot of criticism of like slow moments. I think about how often people clown on the enhance scene from Blade Runner as being like so slow and tedious when it's really not. And this scene is one that I think could be is doing a very similar thing of like it's just one guy in a room laboriously going over something again and again to come to a realization yeah i just think it's remarkable that Shyamalan manages to take a scene that could be seen as very tedious and make it actually really engaging and that it plays as very dramatically satisfying even though he is taking his time right i think that's there's actually some context that's been lost over the years about just kind of how different the sixth sense felt from a lot of hollywood movies at the time um like the late 90s was a time when it very much looked like the future of cinema was mtv like i mentioned michael bay earlier michael bay was kind of starting to look like he was going to be moving and you know people like him made it look like we were going to be moving into a very hyper caffeinated era of cinema uh with lots of really quick cutting and lots of just just really loud kind of aggressive styling and yeah to some extent that that did happen but um yeah even the like the horror movies in the 90s were stuff like scream or i know what you did last summer 13 ghosts right and i think you know the sixth sense along with you know the the whole j-horror remake thing kind of introduced this quieter style of horror within the mainstream like they weren't doing anything revolutionary (laughs) or unprecedented by any means but they did kind of i think so the sixth sense did kind of give people permission to make horror movies that would utilize more quietness and you know even you know the really mainstream ghost movies of the 2010s i, I think they were kind of influenced by that to some extent um yeah, yeah there's the whole torture porn thing in between which is maybe more on the michael bay side of things but um yeah i, I do think that some people just are gonna forget just how kind of different M. Night Shyamalan's early movies felt from what you might expect from the time. Yeah, that's a good point. It's <clears throat> He definitely likes to take his time with it and build up that suspense. I like the way that this scene has, it has a bit of an arc to it too, because when you're listening to the recording, you kind of hear them just having like a regular conversation in their session. And then and the kid seems like a happy enough kid. They're talking about, I don't know, baseball or something. I can't remember. Um, and then Malcolm has to leave the room. And then that's where the ghost comes. And when he comes back, then the kid is just like an absolutely different person. And so I think it's kind of nice to let those, li- even the little moment like that has an arc. And it's kind of nice to let that play out. That's also and an it interesting. Makes you- Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say, it makes you realize like how much, malcolm missed too right like when you when you're actually going back and like the kid changed on a dime and like so it kind of plays into the whole redemption arc too so well it's interesting to look at it in terms of like informing that behavior obviously this is like a supernatural example and not strictly realistic but thinking about how you know people who are struggling with sort of mental health issues might seem 
in rapidly turning from one emotion to another, like they're, you know, you could derogatory like, oh, they're crazy, they're unstable or whatever, but they're with the context of why that change in behavior is there, that actually makes a lot more sense. So even though this is like, obviously like a not realistic example of that, literally, I think it captures that essence uh, pretty effectively. Right. And yeah, M. Night Shyamalan has come under some criticism in certain quarters, especially with his more recent films for the depiction of mental health. Um, and the accusation being that he kind of demonizes people who have mental health issues, you know, and splits and another movie I'm not going to spoil by naming. And also in old when someone's uh, brain functions are kind of they're, uh, I think Alzheimer's or something is accelerated by the aging island. And I, I'm not going to defend him too much with those, but uh, I have seen people kind of go back to the sixth sense and look at it through a similar lens since this is a, essentially a movie about a child therapist and there's, you know, Vincent Gray does murder Bruce Willis seemingly out of mental distress. But, you know, this scene kind of retextualizes, recontextualizes that to say, you know, Vincent Gray isn't actually uh, crazy. The the voices in his mm-hmm. head are real. Mm-hmm. So, and it, you know, the whole arc is about how people who have, you know, mental issues, which you could call the sixth sense that these two characters have a mental issue of sorts with proper, you know, help, they actually can live a seemingly fulfilling life, which is what the path that Cole seems to be taking at the end. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And even like the Vincent Gray stuff at the beginning, even in that scene where it's like, you could, uncharitably look at it as like an example of like you know another maniac in a hollywood movie who's like out to hurt people he's still presented even in that scene with a degree of like empathy um that is distinct from say the visit where i mean i don't want to say that film's completely lacking in those characters but certainly it's it's much more sensationalist of like crazy people from the asylum who are gonna do crazy things and like that film is openly like schlock. So it offends me less. It's strikes me as less egregious, but the comparison is striking to put that film back to back with this one. Yeah. Yeah. Although none of us chose the visit. So I haven't seen it yet. Oh, spoilers (laughs) sort of. Sorry. (laughs) Whatever. I I tried to dance around that and you're like, Oh, and the visit. (laughs) Well, I, yeah, you know, whatever. It's the visit. I don't feel that bad. It's not like I spoiled, you know, six cents or something, which you did, but it's fine at yeah, this point. We, we definitely have spoiled that one. So, well, mm-hmm. you're listening at this point. Like, come on. Yeah. 51st Date spoiled it in 2004 for everybody. That's why I knew when I saw the movie what the twist was. <laughs> Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore told me. <laughs> yeah, you poor sap. It was great not knowing, I'll tell you. Well, it's funny because like halfway through, I wasn't putting it together and I'm like, oh, it's this movie. Oh, <laughs> still great, though. You still get I mean, sucked up in the ride. Yeah, it is kind of weird how I mean, that theoretically, this movie kind of came at the end of a longer trend of twist ending movies with, you know, Fight Club, The Usual Suspects, that whole like lineage, which I didn't know about that at the time. I was 11. I didn't see those movies until later. But you, you'd think it would have but the difference is that those are you know twisty playful movies that kind of you, you, you go into those expecting some tomfoolery this one though you go in expecting just a straightforward thriller and you get this twist that's kind of why it works yeah 
Nice. Um, yeah, I guess we'll jump into moment number two, which from the very next year, Unbreakable. Uh, my my personal favorite Shyamalan film, I think, although I'd like to revisit uh, The Sixth Sense because it's been a while and the DVD I have is hideously ugly, so I probably should blue grade it before I rewatch. But um, Which, yeah, Hollywood, oh, Hollywood, hurry up and put The Sixth Sense out on 4K. I'm sure the Blu-ray is fine, but that's probably a dated transfer. We need a 4K for that and we need a 4K for science. All right. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Continue. There you go. You heard it here first. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I saw Unbreakable for the first time as a teenager in like, as part of a binge of just borrowing a bunch of my friends' DVDs and I liked it well enough, but it wasn't until I rewatched it a couple years ago that I realized like, I actually really like this film. Like it, it gets to me in a certain way that his other films don't, even though I like a lot of his other films, I think mostly just cause I really like Sam Jackson's performance, but, um, the moment I'm choosing is cheating a little bit cause it's not really a little moment, but it'll make sense why I want to talk about it by the time we get to the end of the podcast. And it's the opening scene in the film where we, we start in the past with the birth of Elijah, uh, where he is wrapped in blankets. We don't actually see him, but a doctor has come in and then takes the baby from the mother and examines him and starts like asking like what went wrong in the delivery. Like, did you drop him? And everyone's like, no, of course not. And very uh, sort of offended and hushed tones and, he starts to get clearly upset and and concerned about what he's seeing and calls for an ambulance and says, you know, I've never seen anything like this. It seems that your child has suffered fractures in while in your uterus and uh, he's broken its arms and legs. And then the score starts to kick in. We fade to black. The titles begin. And I thinking about like scenes that play to Shyamalan's strength. I think this plays to three of the biggest ones that he at least at this stage, was extremely good at. One, creating a sense of dread and unease. Uh, The fact that we don't ever actually see the baby. We just see the actor reacting to him. And then the music just slowly creeps in towards the end is so effective at uh, creating like a tension that will not really be paid off for a while because we don't see Elijah for quite a bit afterwards. Um and it's enhanced by the fact that it's all shot in one take with a handheld camera. So the tilts and pans that we get very much mimic like a human being in the room, just glancing back and forth. So you feel like fly on the wall, uncomfortable in this room. Uh, and then dovetailing with the point about the performance of the actors, thing number two that I'm not used to be really good at directing actors. I mentioned Bruce Willis in the sixth sense. I think he's fantastic. I think Mel Gibson in the signs gives maybe the best performance of his career. Um, you know, and in this film, even though like the the main actor, the doctor in the scene, I don't know if I he's a working actor. I assume he's just small roles here and there. I didn't recognize him, but I think he's fantastic in the scene and so clearly communicates the uh, fear that will underscore this movie. Uh, and then thing number three that Shyamalan is really good at is just weird shot compositions. A lot of the scene, there's like a big mirror in the room that a lot of the action is reflected through and then the camera kind of bounces back and forth between looking at the actors sort of unreflected versus them reflected. And I think it also stands out because it's a bit more naturalistic in its execution. I think one of the criticisms Shyamalan sometimes gets is that while his shots are very sort of weird and specific, they sometimes feel very forced. It feels like he's almost trying too hard to come up with like a weird angle to shoot something from which is not always a criticism I agree with. And I'd rather see him do his weird shots than just, you know, the more traditional 
coverage of a scene. But in this moment, I think it feels really organic. You're not thinking when you first watch it, oh, he's found a really unique way to shoot this. You're immersed in the emotion and the storytelling. Um, so that's my moment. And I guess it is small in that it's a very quick scene that is just kind of establishing very briefly the one of the central characters' uh, superpower, if you could call it that. Um, but I think it's really effective at setting the tone of the film and it exemplifies three of the things that I think were Shyamalan's biggest strengths for a long time. Plus, I love the James Newton Howard score. And when that starts to kick in, I am a happy boy. So... <laughs> unbreakable yeah it's kind of interesting that you know for the movie it's called unbreakable it's theoretically the bruce willis character's story but all the there flashbacks through much of the movie to mr glass's childhood in some ways it's more mr glass's movie than uh, i believe his name is dunn's movie um and there's even more of that if you look at the deleted scenes on um which are pretty good deleted scenes. In this era, Shyamalan had some fully produced deleted scenes on all his DVDs. And in this one, there's a deleted scene where um, it's a flashback to Mr. Glass's childhood when he tried to go on to a um, ride at a county fair and it he bounced around it and got injured, which doesn't really advance the story. There's a reason why it got cut out. But there's a lot of similar flashbacks like that in the movie. Um, like to when his mother's using comic books to get him to leave the house and a couple other moments like that. So I was just I was trying to think because you mentioned that scene. I'm like, wait a minute, I saw that scene, but I now I remember where, and we'll talk about that later. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it just Side note, this was one of the first four DVDs I ever purchased. So nice. this is yet another Shyamalan movie that is like something of a landmark in my film <laughs> uh, evolution because uh, it was releases like the Unbreakable DVD, which came in this cool folding mm -hmm. uh, package and had a bunch of cool stuff like that going on with it that made me want to start getting getting into DVDs. So finally saved up enough money to buy a dvd player and my first four movies two of them hold up very well unbreakable and the matrix and then the other two are uh the mummy and the arnold schwarzenegger film the sixth day so you win some you lose some <laughs> i think those are still pretty decent for what they are i rewatched the mummy semi recently and it works the indiana jones stuff works the monster stuff less so the mummy is the worst part of the mummy, but the adventure stuff is fun. The sixth day, it's been a lot longer and is maybe less defendable, but I'll defend it to an extent <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, it's kind of funny that you got, you know, even that the sixth sense being perfect for you, it's like sixth sense, sixth day. Arnold wins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that worked out for me, though, because they, there was a two disc version of the sixth sense that came out later. So mm. I got that version, which matched my, it was from the same line of DVDs as Unbreakable, but there enough about my physical media nerd, nerdery. <laughs> um, no, I do think it's context. interesting how this scene, uh, I do think it's interesting that they start off the movie with Glass mm -hmm. instead of, instead of Bruce Willis. 
Um, it does make it seem, you're right, Michael, it does make it seem like it's his movie, which is weird because his movie is supposed to come later, right? Like and Glass is supposed to be his movie. Right. And he's not a particularly big part of it. Right. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it, the titling is, you know, it's almost like it wasn't conceived as a trilogy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, almost. Which I think is, you know, part of what ends up being a strength because I like Bruce Willis a lot in this film. And I actually think it's, again, remarkable how like subtle his performance is. I mean, he's not an actor who's sort of does is known for like a sort of maximalist approach. He doesn't do much in general, but here there's like a really there's a quietness to the character that really works. But I yes, it to me, it's Sam Jackson's movie all the way in part because it lets him do a lot of his like sort of loud bulldozing other characters like that moment where the guy's at the shop and he wants to buy the print for his four-year-old named jeb and jackson just like dresses him down like obviously you think you're in a story toy store if you're buying you know something for a four-year-old named jeb or an infant named jeb which is like oh beautiful (laughs) but he's playing a character that's like usually jackson's characters can back up the badass posturing by actually being capable badass characters and it's interesting having that personality in someone who's like physically extraordinarily frail. Um, yeah, I love him in this. It's it's one of my favorite Jackson performances. Right. I think yeah. there's also something to be said. I'm sorry, go ahead, Ian. No, no, I'm good. All right. That um, he made a deconstructionist superhero movie before superhero movies were really even a thing. Like this came out the same year as the first X-Men. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you would think this would come, you know, a, a few years after Spider-Man, but instead he was like ahead of the game to the point where he has to like start the movie with statistics about how popular comic books are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> which is an interesting like feels like a relic of another time. Um, and it stands I mean, a lot of superhero films from this era, I find stand out in general because it's like they were figuring out the formula. So there's like, like Daredevil is a fascinating film where it's like parts of it feel very much like trying to almost be like Spider-Man, although based on how the production of that movie was, I don't know how much they would have been directly cribbing from it. But then other parts feel more like they're indebted to like dark gothic storytelling. And it's it, it doesn't result in a good movie necessarily, but it's interesting to watch comic book movies from this era. And even though this film's not an actual comic book adaptation, it stands out in some of the same ways and holds up in some ways better because of how the formula exists now and unbreakable is outside of it but is also even though i don't think m night is really much of a comic reader at all it still feels this film i think pretty insightful about its um subversion of superhero tropes right yeah well i do like the three strengths you outlined and i that's something i never really thought about is him with actors um but you're right like bruce willis puts an amazing performance he gets a great kid performance in that movie mm-hmm. in six sense as well and here too honestly that kid from gladiator um was pretty good and, mm-hmm. and i mean mark Wahlberg, of course um <laughs> that's but... where he suddenly flips because like lady in the water <laughs> is like a work of a madman but like the performances are fine yeah like if we, yeah, with a better got... material they could work yeah, the acting works. The movie has reasonably good just atmosphere, but mm-hmm. it's also the work of a madman. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the 2000s version of The Day of the Dolphin, where, like, on a filmmaking level, everything is, like, 
pretty good. But then you look at it in context and it's like, no, everything is misapplied to this story. Right. <laughs> and to back up a bit, I think the work he's do- he did with child actors is also something where he's kind of being innovative. Like, I, I don't think we were getting like today, these days, we on a pretty semi-regular basis get very strong child performances. Um, yeah, your movies like Broom or uh, The Tree of Life, we don't blink that much when there's a good kid performance in a movie. But yeah, back in the '90s, that wasn't really so true. Like you look at yeah, movies true. from even b- before then as well, the '50s, the '60s, the '70s. They're very obsessed with. Um, it, it's like they're training kids to be cute, like spokespersons in TV commercials. And there's actually like a joke running joke in the sixth sense about that because his like rival kid at the school was like famous for having been in a TV commercial. And, Tommy Tomasino. He sucks yeah, big time. Exactly. And yeah, they're looking back, there's kind of a statement about that, but we're getting off track. Let's get back <laughs> to Unbreakable if we have anything more on that. It's great. It is unbreakable. But yeah, it, it's an intriguing wasn't. way to start off the movie. That's for sure. I I hadn't seen it. I like I rewatched it for this show, but I hadn't seen it like for a long time. And I honestly did not remember that the movie started off like this. And it's an intriguing way to start the movie. There's no doubt about it. And I think it's important, too, for just announcing like, yes, this is a superhero movie, but it's not like it is still very much in the tradition of M. Night's sort of thrillers, Twilight Zone-esque horror stories. Like that's really yeah. Like it has some of the narrative tropes of a superhero film, but it is not going to deliver those types of goods if that's what you're looking for. Yeah, that's true. Right. Although I do think the idea that it's better than Sixth Sense is kind of silly. Well, you know what? That's fine. You also think Raging Bull is bad, so, you know. I think I'm kind of with him on this one. Out of the, the three first original the holy trilogy of good Shyamalan movies. This is probably, I would consider the lesser of the three. No way. But, it's, but... it's unbreakable. It literally cannot be broken. Well, I don't know. I think Samuel L. Jackson characters scheme makes very little sense. Um, the scheme makes perfect sense. The way it ends with like text over a freeze frame of like Elijah went to jail is pretty lame <laughs> and bad. But other than that, it's great. Yeah, but, I mean, he's killing dozens of people to find the one superhero who I don't know what he thinks this Bruce Willis character is going to do in order to um, save enough people to make up for that. But it's not it's about I, finding. I, I don't think it's terribly world. likely. It's so. finding your place in the world. What would you do to find your soulmate? <laughs> Which is what Bruce Willis uh, is. It's a twisted love story. Okay. It oh is. <laughs> it's a tragic love. It's like a Romeo and Juliet tale where they're like, they are perfect for each other and yet they can never be. Oh, okay. <laughs> what is the worst part about the hardest part in the world is not knowing where you fit, what your purpose is. That's what he's approaching. And if you got to kill a couple hundred people to do it, by God, his scheme makes sense. I'm not saying it's a good idea, but <laughs> I get it. Agree to disagree. I, I can't believe <laughs> I am subjected to this on on my own show. This is uh, uh. <laughs> these are the good eras. We need to be 
hyping these films up because after Ian's next one, there's not <laughs> going to be that much positive to say. Okay. Oh boy. So Ian, what's the next let's, one? <laughs> let's do it. All right. So let's go to 2002 Signs. And Signs is, of course, is, I don't know, you uh, yeah, alien invasion movie, I guess you can call it. Um, and so the moment I want to talk about with Signs is uh, the moment where he sees the alien leg in the cornfield. So there's a scene. It's about halfway through the movie, about-ish. It's also in the trailer. Is it? Yeah. I uh, think so. That was a long time ago. <laughs> I saw that trailer so, a lot of times. I go to a lot of movies. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's about halfway through the movie. And um, Mel Gibson is, you know, he hears stuff out in the cornfield. So he's like, he's going to go check it out. And he's he's talking himself up to doing it he's talking to the dog but he's really talking himself up and like oh this is silly but i'm gonna check it out anyway he goes out to the cornfield he's calling out he thinks well he's trying to convince himself that it's just a bunch of hoaxers that are a bunch of teenagers that are messing up his cornfields and making the signs in them um and then there's a scene where he starts going back and he's standing on one of the pathways through through the corn and he something he kind of hears something come sneaking up on him and so he turns around quickly drops his flashlight and just as he picks it up just as the flashlight goes back on you just see this for temporarily it's just still and then all of a sudden you see this leg move into the cornfield and it's very definitely not a human leg um why do i think this is one of his strengths I think because he does, this is a good example of him using his setting to its maximum effect. In this case, the setting being, you know, a typical um, farm, a country farm. Uh, because I I didn't grow up on a farm, but I grew up in, I mean, I am from Saskatchewan, which is the farmer capital of the Canada. And uh, I grew up in a rural town. So I, I understand the idea of how, a how quiet and how still it can be at night and you kind of get that sense that i don't know there's something eerie about that there's something unnerving about being in that setting and i think he captures that really well here where you're alone in the middle of some cornfield and your imagination can just absolutely run wild with you like what could be out there anything could be out there it's dark uh i can't I can't really see anything. There's nobody around for miles. If something happens, I'm all completely on my own. And I think the scene really gets to that. And that, uh, and I also like that he doesn't, it's not like the alien. Once he turns on the flashlight, if it's like a modern horror, you expect suddenly the alien face to just pop out at you. It's not, it's a very subtle movement. It's something and it's like, Oh, did I actually see that? Right. And you can question, did I really see that? Um, I think I, I think there's something there, but maybe it's my imagination. And I think he, that's something that he's really good at is just getting that. Like you had kind of mentioned down that sense of dread, but in this case, it's more like the um, it's, it's very familiar, right? It's something that people who've gone camping and are suddenly faced with, you know, emptiness, empty darkness, darkness, and, you can just think about all the creepy things that could be out there. I think it's an awesome, awesome little touch. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, yeah, this is what I'm talking about with M. Night being an influence on sort of the haunted house ghost movies of today. Um, this to me is just a really just expert execution of the Hollywood jump scare. Um, just, you know, flashlight getting tapped and then turning on just to va vaguely see something. That's like the bread and butter of, you know, horror movies for like 10 years later for a decade. And this is just a really good example of it. Like scene for scare for scare. I think signs is probably one of his most effective movies, just as a horror movie with the jump scares, the, you know, the, the, the scene where Joaquin Phoenix is looking at the television, the scene where the hand is coming into the basements. Uh, it just, it really pulls those things off. And I just, I love this movie, even though philosophically it's pretty much the exact opposite of how I believe about everything. Um, <laughs> so uh, that's how good it is. It makes me, you know, willing to get on board with a movie that kind of feels like Christian propaganda for large portions of it. Yeah, the last shot is Father Mel back at it. Yeah, that's uh. the other thing it makes me overlook. <laughs> I'm glad you I'm glad you said that because I was I feel like I'm I'm always on the defense for this movie like or at least I think things are changing now but for a while I think people saw science as being kind of goofy and silly and and I felt like I was always a defender of it but well once so it became I'm, cool to hate on M Night this was yeah, an easy one it. to pick on I like this movie it's no unbreakable but I do like it uh. um and I think your scene is a good example of like just the way that it builds up the alien throughout the film. I mean, there's multiple, but just the concept of how this film is approaching extraterrestrials, where we see the leg here, we see the hand through the uh, pantry door, uh, we get the glimpse on the TV, and then you finally get the full reveal. Well, you, you hear them banging on the door or outside of the cellar at the end, so you don't see anything, but like that's kind of the closest they've been to the characters. Um, and then finally you get the full reveal at the end and i will say like I, the full reveal i find like it's a little like oh okay it's not bad and um i think i like it more than Shyamalan does because again if you read that book about the making of lady in the water he's very uh bamberger talks about how m night was disappointed with the visual effects of the alien at the end he thought it looked bad and he was very like peculiar or very specific about working closely with the effects team for lady in the water which strikes me as odd because the creatures in that film look like horrible, but that might be more of a design <laughs> issue than a an effects issue. Yeah, I don't know. That that wolf thing was kind of cool. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but uh but I will say like the buildup is good enough that even though I find the actual like reveal of the alien is like I don't necessarily love it, it's done a good enough job of like setting the sort of beats here and there that uh, I don't know, I don't find it takes away from it really. Um yeah, it's a, it's and I like the point you make that like in some ways this is probably his most like fully effective horror movie, uh, which is kind of interesting because it's also one of his most hopeful and optimistic movies by the end of it. Um, and that's a fun balance. Okay, something I want to address. It doesn't really have anything to do with the moment, but just because this 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 talking point is out there. So the big the big thing people use to trash this movie is they say. Why did the aliens invade a planet that's covered in water if they're allergic to water? The reason is because they weren't here to take the planet. They explained this on the radio that these people apparently have not been paying attention to. 
-hmm. it is established that the aliens are there to kidnap the people, presumably to turn them into slaves or something. They were not planning to stay on Earth. They were just going to swoop in over the course of a night or two, grab as many people as possible, and then leave. This is all in the movie. Pay attention to movies before you snarkily trash them. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's amazing how much of like internet plot hole criticism is based on selectively cherry picking from the movie. Um, it used to drive me insane watching a review for Batman and Robin where they complain about, well, if Mr. Freeze is trying to cure his wife, why does he give the cure to Alfred instead of curing his wife? It's like, because there's different stages of the disease and he has found cures for earlier stages, but not the later ones. I hate that you're making me defend this movie. Um, so yeah, I think that's worth pointing out. And it's, I don't know, I think it once it became a thing where Shyamalan was known as like the twist ending guy, which side note, I like that Unbreakable kind of, winks at that with the comic book and his mom being like, I hear this one has a surprise ending. I think that's cute. Um, but once it became known that that was like his thing, it became fashionable to be cooler than the movie. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, you still see it when people talk about like, well, the sixth sense to us doesn't actually make sense. Like, again, trying to be smarter than the film instead of engaging with the film on its level. Um, so, no, I think this one's pretty good though. Although I will say, Rewatching it, I like it a lot, but I do think some of the writing's on the wall. There are little, just little things here and there where I'm like, ooh, just you can see the signs, no pun intended, although that would have been perfect. Um, a couple moments of humor that just stick out as like the sort of weird M. Night dialogisms. They're really small, and on their own, I don't think they would be noticed, but as those sort of quirks develop further, they stand out. Also, the one scene at the army recruitment place that actor is so hammy to the point that, that is like, weird <laughs> and i was thinking like is he like like had like a small role in like a 50s sci-fi movie and it's like that it's like a nod to that but i looked at the actor and it's just some like working guy so i don't know what his deal was but he's so like gee willikers you used to hit them out of the park it's yeah, like that was that was a <laughs> yeah, weird the, performance. M. Night Shyamalan having weird moments with the military will we'll really curdle when we get to the happening and the army guy who comes out and goes cheese and crackers. Yeah. <laughs> on defense on the other side though, when I, I just watched this the other night and uh, I, I ended up really appreciating Cherry Jones's performance as the, as the, the cop. Mm. I think she's really good in this movie. I think she grounds the movie really well. And she kind of provides like this. I don't, I don't know, like this kind of safe haven for, for the other characters at the farm. I, she's really good in the movie. I really, as a supporting I actress, I really I like her. I think, I think all the cast outside of the one army guy is really good. Um, I always forget that the daughter is Abigail Breslin. It's like, holy crap. That's, I don't even recognize her when I'm watching it, but um, M. Night being good with child actors again. And I also think like, even though to me, it's less sort of, showy in its visual style than even something like the village i think it's really well shot like that scene where joaquin and mel are just talking at night and the kids have fallen asleep and like mel in particular's face is largely uh, sort of cast in shadow looks fantastic while also being like completely like again it's going back to like my unbreakable scene where it's like it's very specific looking but it doesn't feel like it's trying too hard to look nice or specific. It feels very natural within the context of the film. Um, and Mel also kills it in that scene. Cause again, this might be his best performance, which maybe isn't saying that much. Cause I don't know if he has that many, like great standout performances, 
but I think he's great here. Like the dinner table scene, um, the scene with Joaquin, like all that stuff works wonderfully. So yep, I agree. Um, yeah, I will say when you I first saw this, I thought you were talking. I don't know why, because it's more of a foot than a leg. But I thought you were talking about the initial reveal of the crop circles, where the first we really see of it is from like foot level, and you slowly right. kind of go out. Which I thought it also goes to your point about playing with the setting, but it's also a kind of good microcosm for the film as a whole, where it's this big global event, but we're looking at it from like a very small, specific ground level point of view. Um, because you can yep. imagine this story told from like, you know, government officials and phone calls in the White House and uh, a more Independence Day E approach to this, but of which there's been many movies. So, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, this is a good way to do it. Yeah, and I do like that. Like, like, I think they he does a really good job of like just adding like small town isms that make you feel like this is a real small town, like the fact that they're always mentioning just other people from the town that you'll mm-hmm. never meet, but it's just like, they know them. They know who these people are. Um, I think does mm-hmm. a really good job of uh, solidifying the setting too. Well, one other little touch I want to mention before we move on, even though it's not necessarily an M night strength, especially, I just think it's a neat detail is when the dog gets sick and Mel's like, well, we'll call the doctor. It's like, well, he's mm-hmm. not a vet. It's like, Oh, he'll know what to do. And then later when you see, uh, M. Knight's sort of character, the who you know killed Mel's wife, he's the town veterinarian. He's the and, bad, yeah. And they never say, make it explicit. Oh, that's why. Mm. But again, you trust the audience paying attention. I will say too, this is also in terms of a writing on the wall thing. M. Knight draws a lot of attention to himself in the movie. Like the first time we really see him is like the kids noticing him from outside and being like, "Is that him?" <laughs> and I think he's actually fine in the film. He's not bad. But he draws a lot of attention to himself. And I feel like if you're going to do that, you need to like be like Tarantino and Django and blow yourself up at the end of the scene. Um, no, nope, but what he does instead is he ends up making Lady in the Water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll defend I'll defend him performing as himself because I think he, he you know, he, M. Night Shyamalan is a Gen Xer. I think even though he kind of came to prominence a bit later, I think he does kind of have some affinity for that 90s indie movie scene and that's where he gets this sort of um desire to put himself into movies it's that's that was kind of a tr- hallmark of that yeah. scene uh, mm-hmm. like your spike lee quentin tarantino who i defend for the similar reasons i think people just kind of have to understand that that's sort of the the trope that that comes from mm-hmm. um and yeah. i think that is maybe lost on some people uh that said yeah i mean the lady in the water jesus christ oh we'll get to that <laughs> But uh, yeah, I mean, and that's the thing, like in context of this movie, it doesn't bug me. And I think his performance is like solid in it. It's not like amazing, but he does what he needs to do perfectly well. But uh, thinking about how he would be sort of uh, looked at in stuff like Lady in the Water, you can start to see like, oh, he's really like, hey, look at me. And uh, if, if this was it, no big deal. But again, writing's on the wall. <laughs> Well, anyway, signs. I love it. I, I mean, I six cents for me is still top, uh, but this one's pretty close. I'm I'm a big fan of both of these movies, but not unbreakable. Unbreakable is great. We just saying these other two are better. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's fine. I guess I don't know. I will say I have two. I own two of his movies, and we'll leave it at that. 
Ooh. But Unbreakable has a 4K. That That's the best looking one of them all at this point. Mathematically, it's the best True, one. I, I did just get a 4K TV, so. Sweet. You're going to watch it on 4K and you'll be like Danny DeVito when it's always sunny. Like, oh my God, I get it now. The grain structure, Maybe. it's so present. <laughs> all right, well, are we ready to shift? Yes, if you're yeah. listening to this as someone who's a huge M. Night Shyamalan fan, maybe this is where you step away. Cause, <laughs> uh, or you get ready to fight us in the comments. Either or. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Engagement is uh, probably good for the algorithm. <laughs> yeah. All right, so let's start Let's start digging in. So the, the moment that I picked is from the movie The Village, which came out in 2004. And I... Th- I, I picked this specifically because I thought we should definitely dig our teeth into this movie because it it is the, this is the turning point, right? This is the pivot foot of his career. Um, right. I mean, and, this is where he started dipping his toe into the waters of sucking, but <laughs> he, he hasn't div- dived all the way in. No. He's just he starts swimming with lady, but yeah, <laughs> it's just a toe dip at this point. Yeah. And I mean, when I when the village came out, I, I was kind of the same as you, Michael. I was excited for this movie, and even though it was a pretty big letdown, it was still like, yeah, it was still pretty good though, and you, there's still promise. Um, right. After I mean, I think, you watch this movie, yeah, I think the movie is good for the first half to two thirds. Mm-hmm. This is really just the one where this is the one where the twist is the problem. But yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. And the, the, yeah, I'm kind of okay with the overall twist. Um, in a sense, uh, I there is another minor twist, so that I kind of can't. I don't know that I can dance around with my moment. So this is a spoiler warning for. I think uh, it's fine the, to be spoiler. Yeah. Just like I joked earlier, but like especially for the early ones that are like really famous. Yeah, don't worry about it. Um, so the the deal with the village is that they're living in this like you know old timey village. Oh, there's a group of, of people living in this old timey village. However, there are these like wolf, werewolf creatures that come out of the woods um, if they've you know if they do anything bad or or go out of the woods into the into their territory. And so these werewolf creatures will kind of sneak out, and everybody's got to go into hiding, and then. Um, and so they're always living in fear of these others uh, outside of the village so that they'd never actually go anywhere. And we've seen these creatures like we they're kind of wear these red hoods and red is like this, I don't know, forbidden color, which sort of he kind of teased at in Sixth Sense. Like there's a lot of like that is a motif. Yeah, there's movie. there's definitely something going on there. So he really he just takes that and just goes all all out with it this time. Um and so then they kind of got like these spiky backs and they, you know, they look not exactly like werewolves they are a little like clumsier and stuff. I mean, but... I mean they, they look like a costume that kids would come up with at summer camp. That's what Roger mm-hmm. Ebert said. Yeah. So <laughs> that's apt. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, we don't get at that many scenes with them. There's like one where they actually cut one scene where they actually come into the village and then you see like little bits of them walking around the border but at the end of the movie, 
Uh, Bryce Dallas Howard actually has to go out into the woods, as you know, you would expect that's where the movie's going the moment you start watching the movie. But now she's actually being chased by one of these and followed by one of these creatures. And so this is big showdown now between one of these creatures. But shocker, it's not actually a creature. It's a suit. Um, and the suit is being worn by Adrian Brody, which is uh, a character named, is it Noah? I think Noah is the name of the character. I think and so. he's, he's kind of like her friend um, in the village. And uh, so, yeah, <laughs> so he's actually wearing the suit, but the uh the scene that drives me crazy is like like that's a bad enough twist all on its own and i'll get to that in a bit but then there's this terrible terrible line that's actually my moment where noah's parents walk into the house because he's been locked in because of reasons i won't get i won't go into all the plot details but basically he's um he's kind of a he's a dangerous person so they had to keep him contained and night and mental illness again exactly yeah. yeah we'll talk about but that a bit he did do something that yeah they so the village has to keep him locked up for a while um but they his parents walk in and of course he's gone because he's gone done this and then the floorboards are opened up and they're like oh no he must have dug up the suit that we had hiding under the floorboards <laughs> and so and so this is entirely contrived situation just so that we can have one of his famous twists where these people have hidden this suit under the floorboard. He, for some reason, has opened it up and gotten them uh, and so that everything is in place so that we can get this shocking reveal that it's actually this guy that's uh, attacking Bryce Dallas Howard, which is a complete wet noodle of of a twist because you're like oh really that's like i want the creatures i want her to actually be chased by creatures i don't want it to turn out that it's just one of her friends dressed in a suit. oh <laughs> it was, it's such a bad it's such well, a bad twist the it other just, thing so so tell me i i haven't seen this since 2004 let me remind tell me if i'm getting the chronology right okay. if i remember right they already revealed to her that the creatures were fake yes she found the suit scene. already and then, but then she goes out, and there's like a voiceover that says, "Oh, but there were legends of the monsters." So you, at the audience, are supposed to be like thinking, "Okay, oh, this is a, the real one that they were right. trying to imitate," which I don't know that that so obviously looks like it's just another one of the suits. So yeah, he's trying to have his, let that cat out of the bag. Yeah, yeah, he's trying yeah. to have his cake and eat it too, and uh, it, it just doesn't work. And then that leads into the other twist ending, which is just completely half-baked and predictable. So, Well, the thing, too, is, like, again, like, the fact that they've already revealed that they are suits makes the line of, like, he must have dug up one of our suits all the more egregious because, like, no shit. Like, obviously, that's what happened. Exactly. You don't need to explain how he got the suit. If it's been established that there's suits Mm -hmm. in the village, we can make our own assumptions, right? Like, this is what you're talking about, how he had faith in the audience before, and now he's losing that. Or you have a scene where the parents are, like, trying to check on him, and they open the door, and they see, like, the floorboard's been dug up, and you just hear them say, like, oh, my God, and you cut away. So at least there, you're, like, you're still leading it, but you're not having it be spelled out. I will say in M Knight's defense, I don't think this was his call because when you hear the line, he must've dug up one of the suits. The, it, the camera's not on the actor. 
Yeah, I'm willing to bet it was an ADR, ADR. insistence so, at the studio's hand. Test screening be. shenanigans. I think so. And again, like reading Bamberger's book, he talks a lot about M. Night having, despite his massive successes at this point, seemingly, a more fraught relationship with the people at Disney than you might expect. Like in the and there was a lot of disappointment about like Unbreakable did okay, but it wasn't a sixth sense level hit. And then Signs did better, and he had to fight for a lot of the village, um, including like the whoever the head of the company was at this point who was like reading his scripts was like did not was really upset that you started the film by saying it's set in spoilers it's set in the 1800s I think or however whenever it's supposed to be set and then oh it's actually modern day where like by starting with those crosses and those tombstones that say this is the date you are lying to your audience and that's going to make people angry it's not really a twist like unlike the sixth sense where like it tells you right from the start bruce willis is killed you just it's so clever at disguising it you don't realize it this film tries to make its twist in a way that's a little a little more of like a cheat i don't really find that a problem personally but the point being m night had to fight for a lot and i would not be surprised if the disney people were like you need to put in a line here that makes it clear what's happening yeah, and this is where M. Night's sort of reputation as the dude who does twists in his movies really came back to bite him. Because the second you see him making, you know, a movie set in the past, you're like, eh, I bet I know what the Twilight Zone twist of this is going to be. Which, you know, that's the same problem a certain movie from last year had. Um, and, you know, when you try to reveal this twist like it's, uh, you know, an earth shattering, you know, development you're like yeah yeah that's what i, what I was thinking which See, the best version of that twist though is the trailer for that new uh adam driver movie 45 where it's like 45 million years ago and he's an alien on earth who fights dinosaurs that's the good way to do that twist um <laughs> because it's the reverse and it's in the trailer not the movie so that helps yeah <laughs> um yeah i i will say like I don't even know if I'm bothered by the twist that much as in a, like a big way, as much as it's just like the movie ends up being kind of narratively unsatisfying. It just doesn't really go anywhere. Um, well, I like think the, the fact that it's not a creature, it really emphasizes that like that is mm-hmm. very unsatisfying. Well, there's no right. like, climax really. I mean, yeah. there is an idea there, this notion of the villagers using fear to keep people in check. Like there's something to that idea, mm-hmm. but he, I just, I, he doesn't, develop it enough he needed more time in the oven with this concept well this feels like a forced yeah they needed to make a climax happen with with these werewolves but it it was like he just did it in the most ham-fisted stupid way um just like, so that we could have his showdown that i, don't I know, mean they could have just, just so had adrian brody out of costume being the threat there that's that yeah. was an option on the table Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to your point too, like about using fear to control people. I know a lot of people, and also lying to a public. A lot of people have read this as a very post, uh, sort of Iraq film, um, which I think is an interesting read. But I agree with you that that idea in theory works really well. It does not translate well, and I would argue something like Dog Tooth handles this concept on a smaller level, but at a much more satisfying level in terms of really, in part because it doesn't try to trick you into it being a twist it's just what the film is about um 
So it's there's more to explore in some ways. And because you know there's almost more tension. Um, yeah. I will say, too, and it's not directly related to the scene, but we've already talked about it, the whole M. Night and mental health stuff. In some of his later movies, it doesn't really bother me that much, but the Adrian Brody character in this film really lands with an ugly mm. note for me. In part two, I, because it's, it seems really rooted in, like, disability and... Uh, I don't know. I don't want to get too deep into the weeds of this in part because I'm not an expert in it myself, but I know when I watch him in this film, I feel kind of gross. And I also know like Bryce Dallas Howard is also playing a character with a disability. And now I think there'd be a lot more discourse about, shouldn't we actually just get a blind woman to play this role instead of someone to pretend. But at the same time, like in the context of the film, it doesn't feel malicious. <sighs> the Adrian Brody performance does to me. And I don't think it was intended to be so, but it just, it strikes a really uncomfortable note that that hurts a lot of the movie for me. No, I agree. Yeah. Um, This was def this was definitely a disappointment because when this was coming out, right, coming right off of signs, you're excited for his next movie. And then you find out that it's like set in this, 1800s village and that there's like a werewolf aspect to it you're like that is perfect like this is this seems like the perfect project for him and just uh, i don't know maybe we built up expectations too much but right and i mean there are still signs of goodness here like that score is really good i think that's Mm -hmm. Uh one of the best scores ever for a not so great movie deservedly oscar nominated like the cinematography quite nice uh there's certain yeah. scenes there's a stabbing scene that i remember being quite good yep uh the cast is good but cast I don't is know. stacked just yeah. re-watching the clip i was like oh yeah brendan gleason and sigourney weaver are in this too like yeah it's, <laughs> right it's stacked it's... with talent and so, adrian yeah. brody <laughs> yeah it's just the problem is it wasn't developed as well and people are just kind of onto his tricks yeah yeah it's interesting to watch it, though, like, again, see, the first time I saw it would have been like 2019 or something. And in that context it was like, I definitely am not with the apologists who have sort of really championed it. But I do think it got done a little bit dirty, like Ebert's one star review, though, very entertaining to read is like, I don't know, Raj, just a little bit like much like he even had it in his top 10 worst movies of the year list. Uh, and if you watch the episode with Roper, like Roper's picks are like, clearly much worse movies and ebert even says you know it occurs to me that uh in some ways i didn't pick the actual worst movies but and i'm like yeah come on now like i get <laughs> why this movie annoys people but no movie that sounds as good as it does or is shot as well by deacons is can be all bad mm-hmm. yeah. so. i mean if he made the movie today it would be seen almost as a return to form yeah yeah but... i mean i think it's better than almost everything he's made since um that might be true there's yes. one exception for me which well, we'll get to but i i'd say there's yeah, yeah. well let's uh let's start closing the gap shall we because dan <laughs> before we get to your next pick um let's just briefly roll through uh kind of his other one so the next one of course is lady in the water which yeah. dan, I think we've Dan, you've made a whole video on this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I don't, I don't have, I don't need to go on too long a tangent. That video goes into a lot of detail, but you know, we talked about like, it's, it's in some ways, like it still has that attention to atmosphere and tone. It's got some good performances. It's got an interesting assortment of actors, but the ideas are just fundamentally like ridiculous and not 
not well developed. Like M Knight is really hoping you're willing to run with him with his weird world of uh, scarfs and narfs and scrunts and all this other nonsense. And it's just like, it never translates. And there's also just like weird quirks, like the guy who was only working out one half of his body. Right. It's like, right. I forgot yeah. You know, so yeah. To, to this day, the lady in the water is M night Shyamalan's lowest grossing movie since the, uh, of his post six cents career. Mm-hmm. Uh, it only made $42 million domestically. That's less money than all the movies you think of as being even bigger failures. Uh, old probably gross less if you're taking into account inflation, but that was you know a pandemic release. That's yeah, kind yeah. of a separate thing. Yeah, different rules apply. Um, yeah, and the other thing is like the the M Night ego elements, which is something I'll come back to with my second pick. In real life, M Night seems like a very kind person. Like all the interviews I've read with him and stories mm-hmm. I've heard about him, he seems like a genuinely pretty good dude. Um, but the fact that he casts himself as a writer whose work is destined to save the world and is so good that he will become a martyr. And the villain of the film is a snooty critic who almost gets the world destroyed right after he got his first taste of really bad reviews is like, Oh man, the optics of that are not good. And if the movie like really knocked it out of the park, you could see it overcoming that and, and being able to still work. But the fact that it's like the most misguided project in some ways he ever took on, this is kind of where he lost track of the optics, shall we say. Mm-hmm. Uh, he stopped reading the room and mm-hmm. kind of lost some perspective on how certain things he does are going to be perceived. Or maybe he's fully aware of how it's going to be perceived and he just doesn't give a damn, which, fine, fair enough. Yeah. The thing, too, though, is like, and this is something I talk about in the video, is this idea of like, it's very much about the power of storytelling and stories to uplift. And that's an idea that like, I think all of us as like film fans can get on board with to an extent, but it's like the most simplistic version of that idea where it's like storytellers are good and will uplift us and critics are bad and bring us down. Like it's, and it feels very thin skinned and hurt. And it, the other thing that stands out to me rewatching Unbreakable is Unbreakable has a way more interesting perspective on how we use stories to make sense of the world, including how those stories can lead us astray. Like Sam Jackson's mom introduces him to comics as a means to uplift him despite his physical disabilities. And it ends up informing a worldview that's deeply twisted and leads to all manner of crimes. That's a way more thoughtful approach to that than like, you know, who's going to save the world? Me. Cause I'm a storyteller and I'm an artist. And Bob Balaban, a.k.a. Roger Ebert, you're the worst, which is also bizarre because Ebert gave positive reviews to Sixth Sense and Unbreakable and four stars to Signs. And then he gets one bad review and he's like, I hate it, you now. It is it is kind of weird that the, the filmmakers we most think of are like most infamous in recent times for writing petty versions of critics into their movies are M. Night Shyamalan, who, you know, was pretty widely praised at the beginning of his career. Pixar, who critics were completely fawning over up till Ratat- up through Ratatouille and beyond. And it, it, Alejandro Gonzalez and Yara too, who he certainly has his haters, but critics by and large are pretty down with him. So mm-hmm. it's it's really, you don't see this stuff from, well, you did see it from Roland Emmerich and Godzilla. Yeah, you but, did. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and also but that was from, a bit more simplistic. <laughs> Yeah, and but, very targeted. Yeah, but other than that, I mean, I don't remember Michael Bay trashing 
Roger Ebert anywhere. So no. Um, yeah, that's a good point. And I will say Birdman's a good example of even though it has its haters, a film that, you know, takes aim at film critics to an extent, but was good enough and had the chutzpah that it's still widely acclaimed. And I think part yeah, of that is like picture winner. Yep. <laughs> Uh, and I think part of that is like, even though the critic in the film is kind of a snooty dick, they're not like a monster. And I actually love the scene she has with Reagan in the bar where like she kind of wins the scene. Like he makes this whole speech to him and she just says, you're not an actor, you're a movie star and there's a difference and walks out. And it's like, damn, that's kind of awesome <laughs> in terms of just like a crushing blow. So I don't know. I think you need to be careful in how you you take your shot like Anton Ego is kind of a caricature of a critic, but he's also Peter O'Toole and he's awesome. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we're, and not that I love Bob Balaban. He's fantastic, but there's like, that's the most irredeemable character in Shyamalan's entire filmography. Yeah. This is a mess. I, this is one of the ones I saw for the first time. Yeah. Uh, this last couple of weeks and it is a disaster. It's, I don't, the the character motivations don't make any sense to me the way that they just like magically buy into everything and mm -hmm. and then it's and then he's he thinks he's being clever with oh he's the interpreter oh wait maybe this person's the interpreter and we had it all wrong and I'm like and the audience is just completely just checked like, out long are before we done that yet? <laughs> yeah well because all the rules are nonsense so there's like there's nothing yeah. to latch on to no um and again like a film critic almost dooms everyone like that's the ultimate evil in the world is film critics but um, okay like, okay we do have to move on yeah. uh because the next movie is even worse <laughs> <laughs> and okay so yeah and the interesting thing with the happening i don't know if you'll remember this michael or if you or if you were in the same circles that had this idea but the fact that this is like a post-apocalyptic film people were almost building this up as the return of m night Shyamalan. like this is going to redeem him after the last after the last couple of movies i certainly thought it was possible like the one yeah, weird I think a lot the, of the weird did. thing about this one is so this was up until a couple weeks from now, uh, M. Night Shyamalan's only R-rated film. And so what? But they they put that on the poster. They, that was like a big <laughs> part of the movie's advertising campaign, mm -hmm. which is, certainly seemed odd. I don't know if people were dying for that. But um, that in retrospect, that's they, they put that on the poster because they didn't have anything else to put on the poster because this movie is... <laughs> A disaster like you know say we, we were talking about late in the water how you know it's still got good performances it's still got good pacing this one's bad in completely opposite ways because the basic premise of it is good actually like the the basic idea of it the people suddenly committing suicide that's the one thing in it that sort of works it's the acting and the dialogue and everything else about it that's a disaster he, he seems like he's not even trying and I, I it was baffling to watch it was just confounding it is something else <laughs> yeah and it's interesting especially because like how good he was with actors versus how bad the performances are in this film now i will say not in his defense but to for further context i stand by that mark Wahlberg is only good when playing idiots or like dicks so having him play like a science teacher was probably not the best casting choice. But at the same time, like, it's not just that he feels out of place. It's that he feels like nonsensical. Like the line deliveries are so bizarre. It feels like they're coming from another planet. So, yeah, I mean, this is the one where it's like, 
I think you, Michael, you mentioned this is where you checked off. You're like, all right, I'm out. Like, yeah, the, there's this no was return. the last one I saw in theaters until old, which I pretty much just saw on a whim. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, it's really. I, I gave it a one star review. It's one of like three movies I've given a full review to <laughs> that have had one star. One of yeah. them is brutal. It's yeah. uh, it's pretty funny though. Like <laughs> I saw it in the context of knowing that it was kind of almost like an ironic "so bad it's good" movie, and like a lot of "so bad it's good" movies, I think that only takes it so far. In some ways, you're better off with a compilation on YouTube than you are watching the full thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I do think there are some genuine laughs to be had along the way. Um, um, I will say that it made twenty million more dollars than Lady in the Water, and actually quite a bit more internationally. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the R-rated first R-rated M Night Shyamalan movie thing worked. It got some people into the theater. I also have heard some people who saw it internationally say, "You know, with it dubbed into our native language, the acting's not so bad." So <laughs> Man, that makes sense. Oh boy, uh, amazing. Well, next Wait. was the last Airbender, which I probably have the dubious honor of being the only person who saw this in theaters. Um, Definitely. I only just saw it last week, so I, I, I saw it like two or three weeks ago. I will quickly say there's a story to me seeing it that's not that interesting, but it's very embarrassing for me because it was the same week or weekend rather that Inception was releasing summer of 2010. <laughs> and it was, I think, the Friday and I had booked tickets with all my friends to see Inception Saturday. And then my neighbors, their granddaughters were visiting and they're like, a couple years younger than me. So they're like, Hey, you know, our, our granddaughter and her friends want to go see a movie, but we want, you know, someone who's older and like a boy there to like, look out for them. I don't, I was like 14. So I'm like, what am I going to do? But I'm like, That's, all right, uh, sure. Patriarchal. They're, they're very patriarchal people, but I was going to get a free movie out of it. So I was like, all right, sure. Whatever. And I was like, inception, here we go. And like, yeah, they're seeing the last airbender. I was like, Oh, and I was like, Oh, can I like maybe see inception and then just like meet up with them later. And then it's like, no, the run times and the show times mean this is not doable. But then as I'm waiting in line, I see one of my other friends like, Dan, what's up, man? Inception? I'm like, no, I'm here for the last Airbender. <laughs> and it was like the most shameful thing I've ever had to admit to someone. It was like I'd been caught cheating. I was like, uh, you know, I feel so dirty. Um, but then Inception the next day was magic. So everything worked out. But yeah, that was uh, and I had never seen the show at that point. So I had no context for the movie. And I still thought the movie was horrible boring uninteresting uh visually ugly badly acted and i don't think i fully realized how badly the acting was at the time but it certainly stands out rewatching at least certain clips and scenes is like oh my god every line delivery is wrong i think it's truly awful i think that it's it seems like it was made not only by somebody who's never directed a movie but who's never seen who's a never movie. seen a movie <laughs> I don't know. It was so bad. And I will, I will, I will give this the most timid of defenses. I, I want put this on expecting it to be just the worst thing I've ever seen. I don't know that it was really the worst thing I've ever seen. Um, Were you on a lot of cold medication that day, Michael? <laughs> I like. I, I just. I okay. So here's the thing. So, what are do you guys have a history at all with the 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 show? Well, I've seen it. Yeah. No, not at all. Okay, so I I watched that a couple of years ago when it went on Netflix. So I'm in this position where I've seen the show, but I also don't 
treasure it necessarily. I'm not super sentimental about it. So having seen the show, the movie's plot made more sense to me than it would to someone who didn't, because the movie is basically just the first season of the show compressed into two hours with all matter of character development and flavor and things that make things work ripped out of it. So I watch it with that context already in my head. The story makes more sense to me. I see why it would look like complete nonsense to someone who doesn't already know that. So I'm not offended on it on that level. I'm also not offended about the fact that it's not hitting all, it's kind of not doing justice to the show either in the same way that someone who really loves that show would be. So on those two levels, I think I'm kind of like the perfect person to not be offended by the movie, I guess, if this makes any sense. Yeah, but it's also so inept. (laughs) It's like the least exciting adventure movie ever made. Is it though? I mean, some of that, some of the fights weren't too bad. The effects no. were okay. Yes, they were. They were too bad. I don't know. I I watched it. It looked to me just they kind of like good. an average bad YA movie that was abandoned in that era. Like a lot of them. I don't know. It it, it felt. It let's put it this way. It it was bad in a very un M Night Shyamalan way. This is the least M Night Shyamalan movie Shyamalan has made. Which is why it's his worst it, it, it was bizarre that he made it. And that's why it's his worst. Lady in the Water is like more baffling, but it feels like an M. Night movie and a glimpse into his mind. And knowing that like he envisioned it as his E.T. is like, oh my God. Um, and that's not good, but it is like fascinating to sift through. The I, happening I... is horrible, but it's hilarious. This is just like, it's a, just a corporate product. And it's also mm-hmm. sucks on every level. <laughs> I don't know. I think that's a little hyperbolic. I'm not going to sit here and defend the movie anymore because I had to see it in theaters when I could have been seeing Inception. It is the worst film. Well, I watch it on HBO Max while working from home. So, (laughs) 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 all right. So moving on. Last Enderminer is terrible. After Earth, do we really need to talk about this one? Uh, I I saw it a long time ago. I don't remember anything about it. Yeah, it's bad. Uh, the performances by Will Smith and Jaden Smith are both just bizarrely stilted. That's the most M. Night part of the movie is this weird decision to have them talk like androids almost. Yeah. And they're both very miscast, especially Will Smith, who he's playing a character who is uh, by design a very cold person lacking charisma. Why in the world would you cast Will Smith as that? That's taking away his one superpower uh and beyond that it's just kind of a limp sci-fi movie with questionable special effects and yeah. just a waste of time uh that that one's probably shawan's it made more money than lady in the water but it had a much bigger budget that's probably his biggest disaster financially although it actually did make quite a bit of money internationally so he mm. still has he still got the last laugh on that one like the only movies that were like unmitigated disasters for him financially were lady in the water and I guess After Earth, just based on the uh, just sheer size of the budget. Otherwise, he's made some money on every movie. Even The Last Airbender made more money than you'd think. It made $319 million worldwide. I was a part of that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Visit, I haven't seen yet. I was hoping to see it, but it just got into the library today, so I haven't had a chance to watch it yet. It's probably his only post signs or the village movie that i would say give a tepid thumbs up to 
I think it's okay. fine. Um, th I think the twist works in that one. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. the found footage aspect of it is dated and yeah, a little weird, but he does it well, so I ca I can't be too mad. It was yeah, I'd agree. It's okay. It's I find some of the writing a little clumsier than you'd expect from someone who used to be really good at like mapping out his screenplays. But it's um, not that very not clumsy compared to the happening. So. It's true, yeah. Like most of its clumsiness is like I thinking about the setup of like the kid who like doesn't like germs and he randomly just brings it up at one point just to remind you for a later payoff. Like it's just and, little and things. That, and that later payoff is itself quite strange. Yeah. So like they're just and they're like they're little things though. It mostly works okay. And I, I remember like the ending gives way more attention to like the sort of family drama stuff with the mom than another filmmaker would. And I don't know if that necessarily is like a positive, but it is an interesting example of him as a filmmaker and what he maybe is interested in, um, which stands out. Okay. But then we get to uh, split. Yeah, then we which, get split. Which, let's just talk about that in relation to Glass. Sure. So uh, so okay. Glass, uh, which is let's my my moment of like not M. Night goodness. Uh, so why I watched Unbreakable when I mentioned the revisit where I'm like, ooh, this actually really works for me was in the context of Glass coming out and realizing, oh, this is actually it and Split all and Unbreakable make up the secret surprise trilogy. And I don't love Split at all or even particularly like it. I think James McAvoy is fun in kind of a hammy way, but I wouldn't call it a particularly good performance. Um, it's entertaining, but, mm -hmm. you know, it's what it is. And I find the way the film, I mean, dealing with mental illness is kind of another thing, but also the way it almost fetishizes trauma, I find a little distasteful where it's like, oh, it makes you stronger. I was like, I don't know. I know some people have drawn that as like a very powerful thing of like, in terms of, you know, growing from those experiences rather than letting them defeat you. But I don't find he really hits a graceful note with that. And that's a problem that I think gets amplified with glass and my moment which i'll talk about in a bit um i don't know do you guys have thoughts on on a, a split before i get into my moment not really okay <laughs> <laughs> it's it's yeah it's... i don't like it very much i don't like mcavoy's performance very much i i don't yeah i do not like yeah it. i mean this is another one where you know compared to some of the real disasters that shaman has made it's it looks pretty decent by that standard but mm -hmm. uh i watched it at one point i think and um <laughs> it was under two hours long i, th I believe if i recall correctly <laughs> it was definitely a movie um, and then it had that final you know twist reveal that's yeah. that's that's pretty much the only memorable thing about it to me yeah yeah i you know it's funny like it was one of those things where like a lot of the positive reviews to me felt very much like relative to the disasters of like it's this comeback film and it's like well it's nothing better than like the happening and lady in the water but it's it certainly was his comeback film well like, also like was. something yeah. we should have mentioned starting with the visit uh the visit was the first movie he basically self-financed mm -hmm. um and i think he's been doing that ever since so uh he that's been a very lucrative thing for him financially because mm -hmm. he's getting more of the cut for each movie which i guess ties into what you were saying about all the struggles he had with the studios before. Um, and, you know, it was after the happening, he tried to become kind of a hired hand director for blockbusters with the last airbender and after earth. And that didn't work out for him e either. So that was kind of his, you know, effort. I'm going to get back to what I do. And then, 
you know, risk all my money and see what happens. And it seems to have paid off for him, but artistically, I think it's not been the resurgence it has been as far as career moves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like, cause I don't like split very much. I don't hate it, but like, it's like, it's like, okay, it's fine. But I was really hoping he could pull off the trilogy in spite of that, you know, in part because like it's such a weird surprise that this is a trilogy that you almost want something that offbeat to work out. Right. There's um, almost something subversive about it, because mm-hmm. in this era of obsession with superhero movies and sequels, he makes a superhero sequel and then doesn't tell anyone. He just hides the branding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can't not respect that. And there is a certain like we talked about, like respecting the hustle, the fact that he stuck around and reinvented himself. And the fact that he, for better or worse, maybe not so much with like Last Airbender and After Earth, but he generally makes films that come from a place of passion and he, you know, believes in what he does and wants to do well. Like you want someone like that to succeed, especially because he demonstrated such raw talent and promise early in his career. So I rewatched Unbreakable in prep, found out, hey, I really like this movie. I rewatched Split, and I'm like, I still really don't like this one, but maybe he'll pull it off, maybe he'll pull it off. And then I hated Glass. I hated it so Mm -hmm. much, and it was so disappointing to like come in with this hope and want to root for it and just be so disappointed. And I'm not going to go into all the reasons why I dislike the film. I'm just going to talk about the ending, which, again, is not really a little moment, but I thought it was somehow poetic to talk about you know, in terms of good M. Night, bad M. Night, the beginning of the Unbreakable trilogy and the end. The ending where you have three characters, spoilers, everybody dies uh, in terms of our our superhero characters, the Horde, which is James McAvoy and Split, David Dunn, who I can't remember what his like superhero name is. It's like the Guardian or something. The Watcher. Oh yeah, the Guardian. I think that's what it is. And then Mr. Glass. Um, They all die in a like in a fight in a parking lot uh, when they're taken out by this agency that secretly exists to monitor the emergence of special beings and, and take them out. And then they are characters though. We have three characters who are connected with one of each of the people. We have uh, David Dunn's kid. We have uh, Mr. Glass's mom, mama glass. And we have Anya Taylor joy's character, the victim from split. So one that, sticks out to me because her connection to the character is quite a bit different than the other two. And I find that, um, again, like sort of rewriting that relationship to be something it really wasn't, doesn't sit right with me. And especially again, because I think it gets into this idea of like fetishizing trauma and pain and like, Oh, it made them stronger and it bonds them together. I don't want to be too dismissive of that. Cause again, I realize people have drawn a lot of, uh, meaning from that interpretation but it feels very distasteful to me and such a simplistic read of that um so that annoys me it also it strikes me as bizarre that like this footage they're showing that's going to change the world and introduce like oh superheroes and superpowered beings exist among us are real the footage they're showing is not exactly doc ock and spider-man on the train it's like (laughs) three weirdos in a parking lot it does not look that super or spectacular and could very easily be dismissed as like not being legitimate for different reasons like people fake extraordinary video all the time um and again like you know especially with if this agency is as powerful as it is as it is this idea that this is going to change the world strikes me as a little absurd to the film's defense i will say that it very much that final climax is very much a deliberate subversion it sets up like a more conventional superhero villain battle and then ends really low key 
And in fact, uh, the fact that David Dunn dies by just being like drowned in a puddle mirrors the story he tells in Unbreakable about how he almost died when some kids dunked his head in a pool and, you know, heroes don't die like that. Regular people do. So there's something poetic about him dying in a similar way. Someone just dunks his head in some water. But then it doesn't really work when you try to turn that around and be like, look at this amazing display of power and and uh, supreme, uh, I don't know, ability. So that kind of irks me. But that's also kind of like almost plot holy stuff and not that important. What really irks me is the symbolic implications of this ending because it goes back to Lady in the Water and this idea of like there's two kinds of there's three kinds of people in the world, right? There's the artists, the special people, the enlightened people, the people who will inspire and uplift and allow us to be our better selves. And there's the critics. There's the people who just exist to bring those people down and suppress them, just like this agency does when they find superpowered beings, they 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 destroy them and they hide them. And then there's the teeming masses who are looking to be inspired by the likes of the great artist. And again, like you get to that ending and it's just, it's I mean, hard not to see it as some sort of weird ego trip that yeah, in the I mean, context of the plot feels completely unearned. Yeah, you lay it out like that. It almost sounds like some kind of dumb, like Randian kind of thing. <laughs> A little bit, yeah. And I don't think M. Night would aspire to Randian ideals in theory, but the way that he kind of draws this dichotomy, it's like, or I guess it's not a dichotomy because there's three groups, but you get my point. Um does have Randian implications. And also, again, like, I don't want to sound mean-spirited in saying M. Night demonstrates ego in these films, because, again, the man seems, like, lovely in real life. But in films like this and Lady in the Water, it's hard not to see it as this sort of both brag and defensive uh, attack against people who've been critical of his works. And maybe I'm reading too much into it, and that's not what it's trying to say, but the way it... In part, I think this too, because it ends up rewriting a lot of the character relationships. And again, maybe this is just me being stuck in my own interpretation of Unbreakable as a story about almost a twisted love story of like two people who are like so similar, but can't actually connect because of these, you know, uh, ultimately opposing goals and ideals to then rewrite that as like, actually, no, these two and also this other guy who has a much more tenuous connection to these two are the same and they're super beings, and they'll inspire us all. It just feels like such a weird left turn from what Unbreakable was about, and to an extent what Split was about, that it's just like, okay, I don't know how else I'm supposed to read this other than as like a metaphor for artists inspiring and critics bringing them down. Yeah, you've put a whole lot more thought into this than I ever did. Um... <laughs> well, I was bored in the theater because the movie's boring and sucks, so I'm like, I gotta think about something to keep me engaged. Because like, you know, when Unbreakable came out, I thought for sure this was like the start of a franchise because Unbreakable is essentially an origin story. Um, it seemed perfectly logical to me that we'd get more adventures of, you know, done uh, being a superhero. And then that never came around. And then, you know, uh, M. Night Shyamalan went all sorts of insane and stopped <laughs> being a good filmmaker. So by the t I'd completely given up on any hope of ever seeing that Unbreakable 2 I dreamed of as a child. By the time this came out, I just did not care anymore. And I didn't even bother seeing it in theaters. I rented it eventually on through Netflix, watched it, said, ah, this sucks, and then didn't think about it again. Um, so it's not even really a memorably bad movie to me. It's just like, it just felt like Split 2, which I didn't even 
particularly care for Split 1. That's the other problem with it, because I finally get my Unbreakable sequel, and we have this character from this movie I barely cared about in the first place playing a pivotal role in it. I don't understand this notion of Mr. Glass being a superhero. He's he's not. He's a he's a nut job with a super weakness. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. so the fact that they keep talking about him is like like the crux of the movie is you have to stop admitting you have powers. What powers? Mm -hmm. He has a diagnosed illness. That's that's all there is to him. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could kind of see him as positive as like Alex Luthor, but Lex Luthor's whole thing is that he's not a superhero. Yeah, it's the so mind that's dangerous. That, Right, so that doesn't even make any sense. And as far as convincing uh, Dunn that he's not superpowered, just grab a knife, stab him in the hand. If the if you can't stab him, then obviously he is a superhero. If you can stab him, that should be the end of it. Mm -hmm. But instead, they waste a whole bunch of movie trying to psychoanalyze him. Um, yeah, which I know but, Matt Singer, the critic, has argued the film probably would have been better if it had three original characters that we didn't know from Unbreakable, like, are, they are very much, like, I mean, it's not a superpower for Mr. Glass, but they are, like, unique in that respect, um, and probably also would have been more appropriate if he wanted to have this ending of, like, these characters as inspiring figures, instead of making them pre-established characters with different ideologies and coming from a film with a very different central theme and conflict, probably would have worked better, because as is, the film's trying to fit a square peg in a round hole, and it does not fit, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, the only real defense I have of it is that thing you addressed where um, it is very much a subversion. Mm -hmm. um, and I do think there is something to that, especially the fact that it's coming out in the middle of this era that's just obsessed with superhero movies. So, yeah, if the original Unbreakable is itself kind of a subversion of superhero movies, I can kind of see on some grand meta scale how this movie where he drowns in a puddle is itself kind of the ultimate subversion. Mm -hmm. I see that in theory, but then you have to actually watch the movie and yeah, it doesn't work. Yeah. yeah and the fact the only... that it doesn't end just with that, it ends with this epilogue, which is that's where like, if which it just ended in the parking doesn't lot, make I sense mean, and has yeah. kind of the same naivete of lady in the water that mm -hmm. one thing can change the world, which well, even the idea of like the the secret company or whatever, it feels like him being like, well, I'm the twist guy. So what kind of twist can we have? And just like forcing that into the ending, too, it doesn't really work. Mm -hmm. I don't like it anyway. Well, it ends up making sense that like, oh, they know they have superpowers. They mm -hmm. don't actually not believe them. They're trying to suppress it. So it ends up making that make sense within the plot. But it also means those sections are still boring because the audience knows and it's just tedious to sit through that. Um, yeah, I will say, though, because I'm trashing this movie a lot and I know a lot of people really like it. So I do feel like I want to point out one thing that I do, do. kind of like some people do. OK, like four or five people think it's really good. Um, Made 246 million worldwide. Yeah, it did really well on a small budget. 111 million domestic. Yeah. And I was part of that again. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll never learn. Um, but. I do like how, so M. Night has cameos in all his films. He has one in Unbreakable and he has one in Split. And then he has one here that addresses that it is in fact all the same character. And I like that. I think it's cute. And I think I like that, you know what? If you're going to go about this trilogy, let's maintain the consistency. Because he's like- You could use that as a fan service moment last week. Oh, I could have. That would have been perfect. <laughs> Instead of talking about Sarah Band. 
<laughs> but I love that, uh, you know, like, because the first movie, he's like doing illicit stuff at the stadium. And then the second film, he's got a job working with uh, James McAvoy's therapist. And so in this one, he says, like, you turned my life around. And I'm like, you know what? This is corny and forced and is like almost on par with, hey, Chewie, here's your medal. But I don't know. I think it's kind of cute. The one thing I liked about this movie was how they actually used like the deleted scenes from Unbreakable as flashbacks. Mm -hmm. So when you were talking about the deleted scenes before, Michael, I was like, you were describing it. I was like, no, that's not a deleted scene. I saw that, but I'm pretty sure it's in this movie as a flashback. I didn't even remember that being in this one. That's the that's I, the only thing I liked about the movie. Other than that, I, I was not paying terribly close attention to this movie. I'll be honest. <laughs> it's not a movie that demands attention uh, unless you're in a theater and you got to give it. I remember uh, Dan Olson did a vlog on this video on this film that I find really amusing. For one, he refers to the climax in the parking lot as a bum fight, which I think is pretty funny. <laughs> but uh, he also talks about like there's a scene in the middle where it's like, oh, Bruce Willis is really good all of a sudden. And it's like, oh, it's a deleted scene from 2000. That's why. Um, which <laughs> yeah, in the context this... of what's come out about Willis is like a little bit. Yeah, yeah, this was kind of the last real movie he made. Yeah, I think it's the last not direct to DVD or direct to video, I should say, movie he made like ever, um, yeah. which in the context of his health struggles is like a bit more tragic. But it is it does stand out in thinking about how the you know, the caliber of performance he was giving at a certain point, like it's so clearly delineated and because they're using old footage. Um, But I do like that also just in principle as like a way to like use, get get scenes of like the characters at different ages without having to do like the digital de-aging, which I'm not opposed to all the time. Obviously as an Irishman stan, it would be hypocritical to be, but I don't know. It's a technique that gets used probably too much. So, yeah. Uh, should we move to our last one? I suppose so. Okay, we got one more film to go. Michael, All right. I wonder if fill us in. Okay, so we probably don't need to take too long on this because I don't have anything terribly sophisticated to say about this. It's just a moment from the movie Old that I thought was just the most cringe thing I'd seen in a very long time. And it's, <laughs> I, I don't know how this didn't become like a widely mocked internet meme because it's been like, buried in my subconscious of saying very annoying that I've been meaning to just go off on for a while. Uh, so movie old, the the movie about the beach that makes you turn old. This is a movie that had potential. I think Shyamalan had a good idea here. And yet very early in the movie, we're introduced to a character who is one of the first people on the beach He's a character who we learn early on is actually a celebrity in the world of this movie. He's a rapper. And we learn his name as a as a rapper, and it is Midsize Sedan. M. Night Shyamalan wrote a rapper and <laughs> named him Mid, Midsize Sedan. Do I need to explain how phenomenally cringe this is it's uh it is the most boomer ass dad joke you could possibly put into a movie that's just a mockery of hip-hop culture and i'm not bringing this up i'm not trying to say i'm somehow offended as a hip-hop fan or that anyone else should be by this this is this is not worth being offended by it's just a laughable laughable thing to put into in the middle of a movie 
And I bring this up firstly because it points to other sort of just lapses of judgment that this guy is capable of. We've talked about many of them. This lack of self-awareness. And I think this also kind of speaks a bit to sort of the dangers of artistic freedom. I just when you when you give certain filmmakers all the power and they're not being told, hey, don't do that. They they put things like this in the movie. And oftentimes that freedom can can do beautiful things, but sometimes it just it leads to mid-sized sedan. Like the the anonymous director of you know whatever Blumhouse horror movie of the week, they're not gonna put in a character named Midsize Sedan. Someone in the in the place in, in on the set is gonna say, Hey, don't make a, a character named Midsize Sedan. But or they'll just have enough self awareness to you know, know that that shit's lame. <laughs> but M. Night Shyamalan, he he sees himself as the genius. You're not going to convince him not to put a movie, a character named Midsize Sedan in the middle of his movie. And it's just, it's the kind of thing where you, you want to, you really want to like this guy's movies. <laughs> and then he gives you Midsize Sedan. And it's like, I, I just, I don't. I'm sorry. I love how much you hate the name. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> it's. <laughs> and it's not funny in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> they take it dead serious. The kids go, oh, hey, there's midsize sedan. He's my favorite rapper. And then you know it never comes really, up again. You know what really bugs me, though, is when. Um, I, I'm sorry. I don't really have the same animosity to where I just didn't care that much. But when he like, I don't know, something happens and he gets hurt. I can't remember exactly watching everyone's around and they're like, Hey, what's your name? And he's like, Oh, it's midsize sedan. And I'm like, now I don't, I don't know celebrities in real life or anything like that, but he's in a place of distress and he's kind of, you know, on vacation. Wouldn't he just say, Hey, my name's Greg. Like, <laughs> Maybe like, he's would, really proud of he just use his real name in that point? I guess so. Yeah, I reacted <clears throat> to this line the same way that like I react to like my boomer uncle posting things on Facebook where I'm just like <clears throat> and just scroll away. Um yeah, I will say your animosity to this line goes deep because when I said I liked this movie, literally the first thing you said to me was just midsize sedan. And that's it. <laughs> it was like and it's like I didn't say I liked everything in the movie. <laughs> midsize sedan with a question mark. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I that, I kind of dig this movie, honestly. I do too. I think it's the best film he's made since uh since probably Signs. Uh that might be true. Uh, well no, I I'd, <laughs> I'd say the visit is better. Uh I might even say Split might have an edge on it. No. Because that, that movie does not have a character named Midsize Sedan in it. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and, That's true. I will I will It does also have say, cringe rapping though. Yeah, but it's a kid. You, you, white kids do that. It's it's accurate. But um, uh, and I don't th- I don't think the scene is really all that emblematic of the problems with this movie either. Like the problems with the movie is that it comes up with this just intensely disturbing concept, and he, he I don't think he really goes there. I feel like this is the, this should have been like a hard R rated exploitation movie. Yeah, I and... agree there. I would have uh, liked it to go further with like, especially the body horror stuff. Yeah. He glimpses of it. Like the idea of like the pregnancy stuff, I think is like 
really good and sort of delivers and like that brief moment with the one woman with the the bone disease in the cave i think it Mm -hmm. starts to hint at that but it's also all cast in shadow for me the only like big weakness in the film other than mid-sized sedan which we'll say is a mid-sized weakness is a literal explanation for why the beach makes you old and an intent to it where i'm like that don't matter it's just like a premise like who cares don't explain it at all like that struck me as like why even bother like what's well much more interesting is like using that as like a an excuse to tell this high concept story the reasons don't matter it's like you know uh who it's that example of like who pumps the batmobile's tires nobody it's a fictional car um and the other thing that stood out to me and it's relevant to mid-sized sedan in terms of m Knight's writing is the film has a lot of really on the nose dialogue to the point that it almost feels like a parody like within the opening scene where it's like one day you'll you'll look back on your youth and how quickly it flew by. And it's like, oh, I wonder what's going to happen. Um, and I will say, too, it's relevant because the defense that often gets made about M. Night and his wonkier dialogue that has was not always a part of his movies, but has become a part of his movies is that, yeah, but it's 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 a visual medium. He's making films. He's not writing books. And that's true, but he's not making silent films. These movies are still full of talking, mm-hmm. so it's reasonable to have some expectations and standards for what people are saying. Um, yeah, and I'd say also, I mean, the dude knows how to block a scene, but let's not make him into, you know, he's not—he's no Terrence Malick. He's not, these are not visual spectacles beyond, you know, that that they're not, that's not really the one reason to go see his movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of what made his films his prime era appealing were in some ways like the plots on a very sort of simple level. Like they were interesting stories. I mean, part of why he was probably so successful on a mainstream level is because if you talk to like the average Joe blow, what they want to see in movies, it's like a good story. Mm -hmm. Maybe they don't really mean that. And what they have in mind as a good story is maybe not what, you know, the three of us might want from a good story, but movies that feel like they're semi-original and creative you know that's kind of so yeah i think that's a fair point that like yes m night is a good visual filmmaker but yeah it is not a terrence malick like experience or a tim burton experience where it's like aesthetic first and foremost um but i do like this film it's the first film of the m night uh i don't know re-emergence period that i'm like i actually kind of dig this and it makes me really hopeful for knock at the cabin We'll Fingers crossed. Has an intriguing trailer, but that's another movie that's going to be about that looks like it's going to have faith as a theme, and that's quite the Pandora's box with this guy. Mm-hmm. Which, I will yeah. say though, every time I've seen M Night in a theater, well, the three times I've seen M Night in a theater were Last Airbender, Glass, and Old. So he's let me down twice. And given me a modest enjoyment once, so the odds are not in my favor, but <laughs> I'm still hoping. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. I think it's, well, if we plan this out right, it should be opening now. Yeah. <laughs> right now. I mean, this, now, yeah. Yeah, the second R-rated film from M. Night Shyamalan. Mm-hmm. There you go. Right on the poster. Can't be as bad as the first. <laughs> <laughs> better better than the other r-rated m night Shyamalan movie come see it all right well i think it. we should probably wrap her up there hey boys <clears throat> yeah i suppose so we went long yeah. and hard on m night and uh i will say though like you know what like for a filmmaker who in some ways maybe has more misses than hits 
I will keep watching. He is interesting and I want him to succeed and make good stuff. So, right. I mean, we could not have talked about this guy for this long if there wasn't something there. So, yeah. As much as we clown on him, he's kept us watching. So, mm-hmm. yeah. As and my I'm my view is he gave me two great movies that I love and that I'm pretty happy with that. And then he came up with Unbreakable, which is okay. <laughs> <laughs> It ain't right. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, Michael, you want to let us know where your our listeners can find you? Uh, yeah, I, I mentioned it briefly earlier. I'll plug it again. Uh, the movie vampire.wordpress.com. Nice assortment of somewhat proofread reviews on a variety of things. And my M. Night Shyamalan post should be up uh, around the time this comes out as well to line up with a knock at the cabin. Uh, then I can also be found on Letterboxd at the Movie Vampire, and I'm on Twitter at, at the Movie Vampire. Nice. And Dan, you got a bit of a break with videos for now. Yeah, no, not by the time this comes out, nothing new on the channel will be out. But uh, the next video essay is starting to percolate, so nice. Look forward to that. It'll be one of the few times I talk about a modern release. It's about time. <laughs> Uh, i will i I know what this one's about and it's about time someone said something about it (laughs) i knew when i made the post you'd be like good man (laughs) uh i will briefly plug um the legendarium green team podcast they had me back on a while back a couple weeks ago for best science fiction and fantasy movies of 2022 so that was a fun talk, and so if you want to check that out and hear me gush about Avatar more, that's uh you can find that at Green Team Legendarium. So, cool. I meant to plug that a while ago, but I wasn't really sure when the times were lining up. Um, well, anyway. the rate I edit, no one knows. Yeah, <laughs> so there we go. We've got we went through the man's whole filmography. Uh, so let us know what are your thoughts on this guy probably the same as everybody else's because i don't know about that there's like all over the place to yeah there are, there are people who Is swear it? by this guy yeah okay. I, I, when lady in the water came out there were people who th- put it at the, their number one movie of the year and thought it was this like mm-hmm. quasi-religious experience for them i believe sight and sound had it in their top 10 oh well wow yeah. well let us know if you're one of those people i guess <laughs> yeah cinema underscore seconds on twitter and cinemainseconds at gmail.com Alright, Michael, thanks for coming on the show Good to be here I've been Ian And I'm Daniel And we'll see you next time <laughs>